Superbikes finally returned to action at Portimao, and in case you missed it, I'll give you a quick rundown. It went exactly how you thought it did. He won them both. Welcome back to Bike Live. Let's go! Title is nearly over, folks. Welcome to episode 79 of Bike Life here on Motorsport 101. As we look back on a double bill of superbikes last weekend uh, at home and abroad, we will start this week's show with a review of the action from Portimao last weekend as the interminably long World Superbike summer break finally came to an end, although Jonathan Ray's domination certainly didn't. Um, we'll talk about his double victory, which moved him on the brink now of a fourth consecutive world title. Um, but there was plenty else going on in the Superbike Pro last weekend to keep us going, including, and we are not exaggerating, the most batshit crazy finish to a race in history in the class, which is specialising in batshit crazy races. We're talking about World Super mm. Sport, of course, uh, and we'll come on to that shortly. Uh, we'll tell you if Anna Carrasco took her first championship point at Portimao, um, and indeed if Marcus Reiterberger took his first championship point in the Stock 1000 class. Uh, we'll cover all the action from BSB last weekend as the showdown got underway and it got exactly the result it was desperate for as Dixon doubled up to close the gap on Leon Haslam. And we'll look ahead to this weekend. It is the penultimate Spanish round and the penultimate European round of the MotoGP 2 and 3 seasons. It is the Grand Prix of Aragon as Marc Marquez looks to take a victory on a circuit that literally has a corner named in his honour. Uh, we'll talk all about that before we go. Um, it's a huge thank you to all of you listening live on Discord at the moment, um, and a huge thank you to all of you that have downloaded this week's show um, with myself, Lewis Sotheby, and Andre Harrison. Dre, welcome. Welcome back to the Church of Dre, and of course, yeah. Dre of Perpetual Exemption. Um, I'm still suffering through uh, uh, a deep existential crisis after the Singapore weekend has damaged my soul. Um, but uh, hopefully some superbike action will be the cure to all these problems. And no, Lewis really isn't exaggerating. It really was the most batshit finish I've ever seen in motorsport. Um, it was really ridiculous, to say the least. But uh, yeah, a lot to get through on superbikes. So let's get right into it. Yeah, because that super sport finish is going to take some explaining. Um, before we get into that, um, the places you can find us, starting on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash motorsport101. On Twitter, we are at motorsport underscore 101. Uh, do follow us on there. Our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash motorsport101. Uh, our website is motorsport101.com. Um, and if you like us so much that you want to back us financially and earn yourself early access to both of our weekly shows, uh, patreon.com forward slash motorsport101. Um, $5 backing, as I say, gets you early access to the podcast. You get to download them and listen to them before anyone else. Unless you back us at a $10 level and you can listen in live, as several of you are doing right now, including um, two, well, one present and one former Motorsport 101 host. Um, one of them actually appeared on the show last week, but Dre returned this week to take back his own podcast, although Dre wasn't in the happiest of circumstances, as you've already alluded to, Ferrari fluffing their lines under the lights in Singapore. Stop me if you've heard that one before. Um, but but uh, yes, quite right. Episode 161 of Motorsport 101 is live as we speak. It is called The Pancake Stack, and we focused mostly on IndyCar because the, the more I talk about F1, the more miserable I'm going to end up feeling. Um, yes, Lewis Hamilton pulls out probably the best individual weekend of the season like the with a... 
oh, yeah, that that's that qualifying lap, which if you haven't seen the onboard for it on the F1 YouTube channel, go out of your way to do so. It is the lap of the year. It is virtually perfect from LH uh, as, as he would go on to dominate the race and take his 69th nice Grand Prix victory um, in Formula One in dominant fashion over Max Verstappen. He very quietly put together a very solid weekend in second um, there as well. And, you know, Ferrari, the big story, Ferrari pretty much fluffing their lines. This was a round they were really looking forward to. And, well, nothing happened. Um, yeah, Sebastian put, you know, starting from third. Qualifying didn't come together. The car was poor in, in quality trim. And then in the race itself, there were people put on the wrong strategy. Way to go, Ferrari. Way to go. Um, I'm not mad about this at all. Oh, and Sergio Perez lost his damn mind. Um, all of that from Singapore and the IndyCar season finale from Sonoma, probably for the last time, at least for a little while, we'll be racing there. But Ryan Hunter-Ray completely dominating the weekend from pole position, led 80 of 85 laps, but nobody cares because Scott Dixon finished in second and would win his fifth uh, IndyCar series title, only the second man ever to win five IndyCar titles alongside the great AJ Foyt. All of that and a good effort from Alex Rossi, who lost a lap on the opening corner, looking forward to a, you know, a tense title finale. It kind of went away yeah, about I five seconds. myself on Twitter, because I, I don't watch many IndyCar races, but given that it was the title finale and it was on at a pretty good time for me at sort of 11 o'clock mm. at night in the UK, I thought, Joe, I'll watch it. And then about 30 seconds in, I was sort of contemplating switching over. I was like, what's up? That? So that was it. Um, but, um, but hey, I shouldn't complain too much because at least I got to see it. Uh, apologies to all you Americans listening. Uh, at the yeah. Um, but yeah, episode one six one of uh, Motorsport One Hundred One is available right now. And uh, if you like your indie car, um, episode one six two will definitely cater to your taste because it will be a full season review uh, of the twenty eighteen to give it its full title, Verizon Indie Car Series, um, that came to a conclusion. Uh, last weekend uh, right then uh, let's get on with uh, the two-wheeled action from last weekend which took place uh, both at Alton Park and at Portimao and we're going to start in Portugal with the craziest of finishes in a series which specializes in rather unusual races world super sport and this uh, this compelling championship battle that we've been having Dre and before we come on to the madness of the finish actually we have to talk about a very sizable incident that kind of gets overlooked um, in all mm. the madness of the finish which was the two championship front runners crashing into each other um or more to the point sandra cortese crashing and wiping out jules clazel um just to emphasize that even in one of his best seasons in recent years bad luck still follows jules clazel everywhere he goes like like who did he kill in a previous life like was he was he just skinning black cats for a living i don't understand how this keeps happening to him um yeah, like only three things in life are certain death taxes and some form of awful luck will strike jules Cazelle in the course of a super sport season um and this wasn't this was again like the racing gods were like okay Cazelle, you've had too much fun here uh, let's bring him back down to earth. And yeah, it, it wasn't even Clazelle's fault, really. It was it was just Cortese. It was an aggressive overtake from Cortese on the inside. Cortese loses the front, and Clazelle's on the outside just gets collected. There's 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 nothing more to it than that. Unfortunately, Clazelle's just been very unfortunate that Cortese's gone in a bit too hot, wiped himself out, and Clazelle's been the full guy. And what makes it even worse was that Cortese was able to get back up and rejoin. Um, and it would go on to finish in fifth, doing Clazelle substantial championship damage while Clazelle was unable to continue. So, yeah, a, a, you know, just one of those unfortunate racing incidents where Clazelle's been the unfortunate victim of uh, a Cortese era that he's, he's been able to get away with. 
Um, yeah, someone give Cazell a break, please, for, mm. for God's sake. Yeah, like, it, it, it was Pete Cazell in many respects, not just the fact that he mm. was desperately out of luck, but also um, his reaction to it. It was a tremendous drop that he had afterwards. It was one of those that... Um, Johnson may appreciate this reference listening in that it was remember mm. when Christian used to have that that gimmick in WWE when he would have a massive paddy after losing a match um, yes he would just he would just you know absolutely lose his lose his shit in the ring that was kind of what Jules Clozel did um, after he got scooped up by Cortese and he was absolutely punching away at the tarmac um, as he was down on all fours um, on the racetrack and, and you couldn't help but feel for him because it was not his fault at all he was on the outside and just got scooped up by, by Cortese's errant Yamaha and what was worse is that Cluzel didn't continue he was out of the race and Cortese managed to get back on and finish fifth um, and pull 11 points out on him um, in the championship they were battling for second it has to be said in the race at the time because Lucas Mayas was already away and gone with it at the front of the race he'd taken pole position uh, on the Saturday, and boy, did he need that in the context of his season, um, the way mm. his championship been un- been unfolding, and he looked to be on course for a pretty comfortable victory, which, in the absence of Clouzel and with Cortese down in what was sixth at the time, would have catapulted him right back into championship contention until the bad luck struck the worry reigning champion. How rarely do we see this straight? Not just on the last lap of a race, but in motorcycle racing, a rear puncture. Uh, huh? What? Huh? Um, okay, like, again, who did Mahias kill in a previous life? Because We've been talking I... about him for weeks, haven't we, that he needs to pull his finger out, and he did everything asked of him. Right. He could do no wrong here. He was going to win this race convincingly. He had it in hand several seconds. It was going to be a comfortable win for Lucas. And again, if he was class as a finisher... He would only be 21 points off the championship lead with three to go. Mahias would actually have an outside chance of the title again. Um, but unfortunately, he was classed as a DNF, and we'll get to the main reasons why. I mean, technically speaking, he counts as a not classified, which you never see on a Wikipedia table. But um, we'll get to that in a minute. But in the meantime, yeah, I just did everything right. Um, rode magnificently in the race, was going to win it convincingly. Um, without any problem at all, and yeah, this was this was this was going to be the critical weekend. It was really last chance saloon for Lucas, and he, he, he did everything right until the red flag came out. But uh, a, a, a very, yeah, a very which, bizarre which is, rear puncture. Yeah, a bizarre rear puncture. He had the race under control. He, he, and what what's crucial in here because there's a sequence of events that we need to make sure we we get right and explain properly. This happened as Mahias was crossing the line to start the final lap. Um, mm-hmm. So crucially, he crossed the line to start the last lap, leading the race, um, and was overtaken about ten meters later um, as he as he ground to a halt with a flat rear tire. Caracasulo goes through into the lead, and we think that's the end of it. Unfortunately, um, well, for, unfortunately, if your name um, is Borja Cuero Martinez, the most Spanishly named rider ever, um, who got yes. wiped out on the uh, the penultimate lap of the race by Rob Hartog, um, the ESS uh, Championship leader. Um, that's the championship that runs at European rounds only. Um, the Dutchman took uh, Cuero Martinez out and was subsequently disqualified for dangerous riding as a big result of it. Um, so, um, so there's no uh, no doubts as to who was at fault for that one. Um, now, because Cuero Martinez, both his body and his bike were lying in the middle of the racetrack, even on the final lap of the race, the race direction had to stop it. Um, they had to pull the red flag out, even though there was only half a lap to go. They couldn't allow the rest of the field to go piling into that corner at racing speeds. Um, no so they red flagged it, um, which then 
triggered the bizarre trade of events that followed in that as as i'm sure most of you who listen to motorsport regularly will know um if a red flag comes out particularly in motorcycle racing i don't follow the one it's two laps but in motorcycle racing if a red flag comes out the result is taken at the end of the last complete lap i.e the last lap that every rider in the field completed um which was the penultimate lap uh, and remember if you were listening a few seconds ago that was lucas mahias who was leading mm-hmm. the race um, so Mahias, who's sat at the side of the racetrack um, cursing his luck, sees red flags flying and suddenly realises he's got five minutes to get back to the paddock and get back to the pits and he can keep the victory. Um, and all is salvaged. Um, which led to... I mean, I, 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 I dare say you've seen this since, Drake. It was a, it was an astonishing spectacle. I mean, it's... it's right. It's it's just as well that Lucas Mahias is a stunt rider um, in, a, in a former life, in a former career, because... He was absolutely gunning it back to the pits on a 600cc motorcycle that had a flat rear tyre on it. Yeah, to put it into perspective, these bikes have about 140 horsepower and are capable of at least 160 miles an hour. And he's trying to drag it back to the pits as fast as he can. Um, basically, the race is already over but and the track is essentially clear because everyone's now basically pacing it back around to get back into the pits because the race is over. Mahias is going as, as fast as he possibly can with a with a rear tyre in shreds. Yeah, and he falls um, off it twice. Yeah, he comes off it twice, trying to tail it back to the pits at full racing speed, knowing he has five minutes to get back. Otherwise, it, he doesn't only lose the win. He's cla- he's, he's no longer classified and scores zero. And he's out of the championship. So, yeah, essentially. So, yeah, Mahias' entire championship now boils down to whether he can drag a broken bike with a punctured rear tyre back to the pits in five minutes. And uh, somehow, this is not the most dramatic thing about this return voyage and the red flag situation that comes in. Lewis, continue. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Lucas Myers, and it, it is an extraordinary spectacle if you if you do find coverage of this race. I mean, it was due to the fact that we went through that that ridiculous World Superbike survey live on the show a couple of weeks ago. You get we got a free video pass so we could watch it live because it wasn't it was at the same time as BSB Race One, so it wasn't on Eurosport live. Um, now. Tom Brooks and Steve English were doing their best to try and explain what was going on. Like Steve English, to his credit, picked it up straight away. As soon as that red flag came out, he said, well, Mahias has got five minutes now. If he can get back, he wins the race. Um, mm-hmm. So so Mahias is he's absolutely gunning it. Um, he falls off the bike twice. We're all watching the live world feed coverage of, of a race that's finished, but a rider who's basically riding for his life on a motorcycle that's got no place on a racetrack trying right. to get back to the pits in five minutes he does it he gets back with i think it was 18 seconds to spare um and is greeted in the pits by and in part firme by his uh, adoring team waiting for him who give him a hug and give him a pat on the back and they think they've won the race they literally think they've won the, the, the motor race at the time um but what's in the end cost lucas my ass is that having fallen off the bike for the second time two corners from home he then goes up the service road on the inside of what is a double apex final right-hander and shortcuts the last corner and gets into the pit lane. Um, and that is where my ass falls foul of the regulations um, because he did make it back in time, um, but because he had been essentially not completing a full lap of the course on the way back, my ass gets stripped of the win. He's back in the pits thinking he's won it, and then all of a sudden the timing screens change and he's he's taken out the result. Um, and he was crestfallen, uh, as you can imagine. He was absolutely gutted. Even Jonathan Ray um, mm. went down to GRT 
uh, and was consoling Lucas Myas for, for what he'd been through. Because uh, if you trace it back to the very start of the sequence of events, he was robbed by a puncture, first and foremost. Yeah. Before you even discuss whether you think he was robbed by the regulations or not. Um, and and that was that. Now, um, Steve English, World Feed commentator for World Superbikes, did a great job on their, their official website of sort of laying bare the regulations, explaining what's gone on here. So I'll try and give you a bit of an explanation as to what's happened and what the rules state. Uh, it all falls, falls under Article 1.26 of the World Superbike Championship Sporting Regulations, um, which concern when a red flag is declared by race control. The key rule is that when you uh, when the red flag comes out, you need to get back to the pit lane, as we've illustrated, within five minutes of the flags being waved um, and the red flag signal being given on the timing screens in order to be declared a finisher, with the results being set by the previous lap completed by the entire field. As it stood at that time, Mahias was leading um, and thought that if he got back to the pits in time, he'd be declared the winner. Now, apart from the five-minute rule, there are other rules to consider, one of which is you needed to be an active participant at the time of the red flag. Um, now, Mayas crucially had not been officially declared a retirement on the timing screens at the time of the stoppage, so he was, according to the timing screens at least, still in the race and still competing, um, mm-hmm. even though he pulled his bike over at the side of the racetrack. Um now, on the official results, he's been cited as having a technical problem, which took him out of the race, that technical problem being a puncture, um, which is why he was struggling to go back to the pits, as we've discussed. Now, the rule that is really crucial in all of this is Article 1.21.3, which states that riders should use only the track and the pit lane unless they accidentally leave the track, then they may rejoin it at a place indicated by the officials or at a place which does not provide an advantage to him. Um, now, in racing conditions, race directions are able to enforce a penalty of dropping a position or, in inverted commas, further penalties. The further penalty in this case was essentially taking him out of the result and deeming him a non-classified finisher. Um, now, a lot to pick apart there, Dre. Um, mm. First of all, <laughs> Lucas Myas, he gets back inside five minutes, but he's ruled to have not completed a lap of the racetrack and taken essentially an illegal shortcut. Right. Well, this is essentially... You can argue this both ways, can't you? Because GRT Yamaha will surely, when they appealed this on the Sunday, be saying, well, how can it be a shortcut when the race is over? Right. He, several words, is it in the rules that you can't gain an advantage on a timed rule that would never come into play in any other circumstance? Like, this, you know what this is? This is like 14 different mitigating circumstances con- like confuddling on top of each other like something out of the Great British Bake Off. It's, it's ridiculous. It is insane. It is the mitigation of, like, was Mahias a, a classified runner at the time? Yes. But the race is over. So why is there a five-minute classified rule? And why are you running the clock on that? And, 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 and that's on top of that. And then on top of that, you've got to consider... Well, he gained, he used a shortcut to get back inside in time, which surely is understandable given the context of the situation. Mahias His bike had just, no just, yeah, just, just to point out, Mahias claimed, um, and I'm not, I'm not going to say he's a liar. I understand this. He said that he took the shortcut so he wouldn't drop oil and debris on the final corner. Which is which is a valid which is which is a valid bit of logic to yeah. claim because I'm I'm guessing there was riders still circulating or potentially still circulating, and you don't want to have you know stewards clean up the track in between races. And there was a superbike race to come shortly after that. Exactly, and not to mention it is safer to do that in that circumstance than use the racing line in in what is technically a red flag situation when riders are still circulating. 
you know, guys could still be facing medical treatment as well. So, if anything, using the slip road is probably a better option than being on the track still. I mean, like I said, this this is like one scruffy and vague rule stacked on top of another one. And, like, I, I can't believe they've disqualified him for this. I, I, I think... I think this is the sort of circumstance where, okay, the rule book. Okay, he's he, he's broken the rule book, and I'm not, no one is arguing this. Technically speaking, he has broken the rule book, and you know he's broken regulations. And yes, he is he is liable to the full extent of the stewards and what they want to do in terms of punishment. However, and I don't normally like playing the spirit of the rules card yeah. here, but I, but I'm going I know exactly to do where so. you're going, and I agree with you. Yeah, because this is such an extraordinary circumstance. This was not why that regulation was written. Exactly. This this this, is, this goes beyond the rule book. You you would never write something against this in a million fucking years because you will never this see this again. The five minute rule and the shortcut rule was written to essentially prevent a rider causing a red flag. Imagine a rider as a lap down in last position, causes a red flag himself and then is able to restart from the back of a grid in a restart and gets classified. Um, right. Or, for instance, a championship's on the line and a rider is hanging on to a position which would win him the championship, so he causes a red flag. You know, that, that's what the rule's in place for, to, to ensure that if a rider causes the stoppage, he doesn't benefit from it. He's out of the race. Um, but it wasn't Lucas Myas that caused the red flag, it was Rob Hartog that did. Um, because yeah. he took another rider out elsewhere on the racetrack. Um, so, so Mahias is, is, you know, has a, has a valid grievance there. And also Dre, the regulation about, cause David Emmett mentioned this on, on, I think it was on Monday. He said the only regulation that he could see Mahias had broken was that he wasn't an active competitor at the time of the stoppage. But surely that's what the five minute rule is there for. If he gets back in five minutes, he's still an active competitor. Right, because if he couldn't do that, then clearly he isn't an active competitor. That's why the five-minute rule is there in the first place, surely. It, it's your way of, of, of finding out who is still on track and who's able to circulate and who isn't. Because if they can't, well, they're not going to... They're going to be... They, they would get a DNF in a green flag scenario anyway. So that's why this five-minute rule is in play. And Mahias did not break that rule because at the time the red flag was pulled out, he was still on the timing sheet and was not classified as a retirement. So, technically speaking, he was still an active competitor in that race, and Lucas had every right to try and get back into the pits in time. Um, so, no, he's not broken that rule either. So, like I said, I think common sense should have prevailed here in this circumstance, and should have just let Lucas keep this win. Because, I, I mean, he Lucas didn't hurt anybody. He didn't actively hurt another competitor by doing what he did i mean bottom line is i feel really really sorry for lucas in this circumstance mm. because not like he was going he was crossing the start finish line of a win he had the win taken off him 10 seconds later when his rear tire bursts only to think then he had a chance of winning the race again thinking he had won the race again and then being classified as a non-finisher only a few all this in the space of maybe eight minutes i have never seen anything like that in motorsport where you've had the win taken off you gotten it back and then taking it off you again in the space of a few minutes it is truly ridiculous and i think just because of the sheer ridiculousness of this scenario they should probably have just closed the vague and probably not ideal rule but that doesn't fit the circumstance here 
as use of disqualifying Mahias. I think they should have just let this one go. He got back to the pits in time. Let him keep his win. Because mm. I think there's, I think there's, a, there's an argument for some sort of force majeure to come in here. In that, look, yeah, you you, you took a shortcut, but you know, the ra- the the racetrack wasn't green anymore. So 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 does it matter if he hasn't taken a shortcut? It's not a live racetrack anymore. Um, and and he did that. And I I don't necessarily buy the argument that he did that to avoid getting um, fuel and oil and debris on the track because sure. He was- because he must have known he was against the clock, and I, and I don't necessarily blame him for that, um, for taking that shortcut. Um, but anyone would, anyone would have done the same thing. He was, he was, he must have known he was running it close to the five minutes because he, he dropped the bike twice on his way back anyway, and he was going at half speed. Mm-hmm. And it's a, even at full racing speed, it's a minute forty lap um, around exactly. now at the best of times. So he was absolutely gunning it on a on a bike that had no place been on a racetrack it was in no fit state to be going around a racetrack given that his, his rear tire was flat as dre mentioned that you know the tire could have shredded itself to pieces you know the chain could have come off his bike he could have you know it could have really very badly hurt him had he fallen off again or fallen off mm-hmm. at full speed and just the just the images of him you know you could see him just sort of snaking around as he's trying to get it into the pit lane um he is going as fast as he can on the the bike and the tires that are underneath him and he's he's almost struggling to keep it under control as he's getting it in the pit lane um and you could see he was exhausted as he got back and the team were you know under the impression that they'd won the race now technically the team did win the race as i'll tell you in a moment but it just wasn't Mahias that won it um and it's it was a double whammy wasn't it drake's not just did the wing get stripped from him but that is essentially his title defense over yeah, as as it stands right now, he is 46 points off Sandra Cortese, the championship leader, with just three races to go. Mahias is essentially out of it. There's too many guys in front of him, and there's probably just not enough points on the table now to get back up there in time. So, as far as I'm concerned, Lucas is out of the running, barring a protest. Mm. And... That's a real shame for Lucas, who did everything right this weekend. And even when he did do everything right, he ends up with a donut for his trouble. It's uh, it's brutal. It's a brutal bit of luck. Again, like such a spectacular and ridiculous set of circumstances for this to happen in the first place. And yeah, now he's got nothing to show for it. And he will now most likely lose his, his world title, most likely to either Cortese or Clazelle. Um, So... Yeah, it's it's a real shame as, um, that Lucas's title campaigns ended in such an awfully unlucky fashion. But that's bike racing for you sometimes. But uh, yeah, it doesn't make it any less brutal. And yeah, my, my sympathies go out to Lucas and the GRT team because that is a, a shitty way for one of their riders to lose a Grand Prix. Mm, yeah, uh, you say that uh, in terms of the well, championship and how it looks. Of. Well, that brings me to the actual winner um, of the race at the end. Now... Um, it's better to be born lucky than good, as as it's as they say. And Federico mm-hmm. Caragasulo um, inherited the win from his teammate. Um, now it, it might not feel like it, given that these races were essentially two and a half months apart, Dre. But that is now back to back wins for Federico Caragasulo. Um, he's up to third in the championship. He's twenty points behind uh, Sandro Cortese and only four behind Jules Clazel. Is are we sleepy on Caragasulo? Could he come through on the blind side and beat them all to this? He could. I, I don't think it's inconceivable. Federico Caracas has been able to win races. He's a very fast rider, and he's always been in the conversation. Two or three seasons, he's he's won races now and has mixed it up with the, with the big boys. And 
I mean, we've had five different guys win Super Sport races this year. We've had a couple others that have had surprise podiums, like like Raffaele De Rosa and Kyle Smith, who got on the podium this weekend at Portimao. So we've we've we yeah finished second as uh, as a result of shenanigans. You know, his best result of the year. Um, so yeah, like Caracuzzi was the man in form and. There, I, mean, I know sports and momentum, I think, is a bit of an overrated, a bit of an overused term sometimes, but it does kind of make sense here. Caracuzzi has won the last two now. He's been very, very fast. Um, surely, he's, if, he's... The, if their appeal fails, GRT are going to have to ask Mahias to play Rio Gunner. God, is he going to agree to that? I don't even know. But, um, yeah, he's. He, like, I mean, in theory, you would expect GRT to pull Lucas to one side. Because yeah, Caracuzzi did it to about. him in Qatar last year. He did. He did get out of the way for Lucas. He was willing to help Lucas win the title. So I wonder if Lucas will uh, see the bigger picture here and, you know, do the honourable thing and let Federico go for this title, um, knowing that uh, Clazelle's only four points in front and Cortese's only 20 points in front. So, yeah, Caracuzzi now all of a sudden is probably second favourite for the title now, all of a sudden, which is crazy given a month ago. He yeah he was winless for the season and now he's right in right in contention again. Mm, he is right in contention. He's twenty points off the lead. Twenty points covers the top four because Randy Krumenacker is level on points with Caracasulo on one hundred and twenty nine. Krumenacker could only finish fourth um, at the weekend in Portimao. That means he's now gone five races without a podium. Basically, since that ride of the year candidate in Assen. Um, he hasn't been on the podium since. He's been either fourth or fifth in every race since, um, but no higher than that. Um, but it was an extraordinary race in that Caracasula wins it with three different manufacturers on the podium, um, which is the first time we've mm. had to say that this year um, in what has been a Yamaha-dominated series, with a Yamaha winning from a Honda and an MV Augusta. Uh, and Raffaele de Rosadre, who is uh, now 30 points off the championship lead, he has closed the gap on Cortese and Cluzel with his third place, um, but not by enough really to be in contention. He's 30 points back with three races to go, so he's still too far back. But once again... We need to mention how good a season this guy's having. That is now six podiums on the spin for the MV Augusta of De Rosa. It's incredible consistency. Um, Rafael De Rosa, since his crash in Aragon, has been on the podium every since. Finished five of the last six in third place, the second place as well, even going one better at Misano a month ago. Um, yeah, he's riding phenomenally well. It's a Yamaha championship. We all know it. He's out, yeah, he's surrounded by five other Yamahas in the top six of the championship right now. And despite that, he is competitive in almost every race he competes in right now. And the MV Augusta, we all know they lack resources. They're not competitive in terms of race packages compared to Yamaha and anybody else at the moment. They always play catch-up in, in terms of when it comes to their racing. But Raffaele de Rosa is doing about as much as that bike can do. He's not making mistakes on it, and he's just getting the best result he can. You can't ask for much more than that. And this consistency has kept him with an outside chance of winning the title. He needs to win a couple. Probably needs to win two of the last three to realistically have a chance here. But bless him, he's trying. And again, you can't ask for much more than what he's doing on the MV right now. No, he's uh, he's having a tremendous job. And shout out to Kyle Smith as well, who, who finished second on the CIA mm, Land Insurance's Honda. That is a great result for the uh, C half half Yorkshire and half Spaniard um, in uh, in second place. Um, let's give you the full result then. Caracasulo, in extraordinary circumstances, the winner from Kyle Smith uh, and Rafa de Rosa third. Randy Krumenacker fourth, ahead of the championship leader, still Sandro Cortese, who, after crashing and dropping down to 21st, rode like a demon to Salvage fifth. Um, mm. Ahead of the Estonian, Hannes Soma in sixth. Um, Eta Badavini on the uh, 
well, the other factory MV Agusta in seventh, ahead of Thomas Gradinger, the sole NRT bike to make the finish in eighth, Hikari Okubo ninth, and Hector Barbara, remember him, he finished huh? tenth. Um, he, he is uh, Keenan Savoglu, who's now full-time replacement at Pachetti Kawasaki, and on his debut in World Super Sport, um, Hector finished tenth. Um, the final points positions went to Luke Stapleford in 11th, Pons in 12th, Van Sicklerus in 13th, uh, Stanger in 14th, and the Brit Sam Hornsey, uh, who made his debut for the Profile uh, Triumph team. Or well, they were Triumphs. He's on a Triumph. Stapleford, his teammate, is on a Yamaha. Long story. Um, he took the final <laughs> point in 15th place. One of the riders worth mentioning, and that is Alfonso Coppola, the uh, championship runner-up last season in Super Sport 300. He was the first ESS runner to make the finish. Um, largely because um, his lead rival in that, uh, Rob Harto, got disqualified. So Coppola won the ESS race, uh, despite being the last classified finisher. Championship standings, then, um, they look like this, with three races to go. Um, it's led by Sandro Cortese, although his lead um, is actually bizarrely, given the fact that he fell off, has grown to 16 points over Jules Cluzel. So Cortese can now finish second in the three remaining races, and he will win the Supersport title in his debut season. Um... Clara Casulo is third now on 129, 20 off the lead, level with Krubenacker in fourth. Raffaele De Rosa is 30 off the lead in fifth. Lucas Mayas is now 46 off the lead with just 75 to play for in sixth. Kyle Smith is up to seventh on 59 with Luke Stapleford eighth. Anthony West is ninth on 51. Now he got popped for a doping violation last weekend and got missed. Uh, As got, you got do. Out of the race weekend. For the second time in his career, uh, Anthony West has failed a drug test. Um, unbelievable. Um, the 37-year-old, he arrived at Portimao to race, but then he was told that he'd failed a test at Mizano in July for a non-specified stimulant that he'd been tracing a urine sample. Um, so no more Anthony West. Um, so he's ninth in the championship at the moment. I expect his results to get uh, expunged from the records before we're done um, at the end of this season. Uh, and Thomas Gradinger rounds out the top 10 in the championship. He has taken 10th off Nicky Tooley, who, as you, are, I'm sure you know if you've been following his regularly, is now a Moto2 rider. Uh, on to Super Sport 300 then. Um, and the first of the championships that we thought might be decided um, last weekend. Anna Carrasco stood on the verge of history. Um, if she uh, extended her lead to over 25 points by the end of last weekend, she would become the first female champion uh, of a unisex motorcycle racing world championship. We do have a women's only motocross world championship. Um, but this would be the first time that a woman had beaten men to a World Motorcycle Racing Road Racing Championship. Um, now, she didn't do it, Dre. That's the first thing we should say before anyone gets excited. Um, and uh... to be fair, the way her race went at Portimao and the way her races have been going of late, we now have to start asking the question, is she going to win it at all? The question marks are out um, on this one, because, yeah... Um... Carrasco, since the rule change, no question about it, has struggled. Which was pre-Bruno. Um, yeah, it was pre-Bruno, and that was quite a few rounds ago now uh, that, that Carrasco has struggled. And, you know, we, we could go into the long story of how it's gotten to this point with Kawasaki running a 400cc bike, a bike that clearly caught the organizers off guard. And this, is, this, this was the series trying to usher in a late rule change to basically basically nerfed the Kawasaki that was too overpowered. Um, and the biggest victim in this has probably been Carrasco because she's smaller than a lot of the other riders in the class um, and weighs less. They have to put more weight on the bike, which makes it harder to ride. Um, you know, the, the, the performance ballast that comes into play to make the minimum weight requirement um, is, is um, it, the bike suffers as a result. So 
yeah, she struggled since then, and now, due to the race result and Scott DeRue winning the race, DeRue's now second overall, and only a handful of points back. I think it's, I think it's 10 points back, Lewis? 10 points um, back, yeah, and it's... Carrasco's results since this rule change came in place are concerning because she started the season with a fourth, a, uh, sorry, a sixth, a fourth, and two wins. Um, those two wins coming at Imola and Donington. Then we had the change in regulations, which essentially saw the bikes sort of hamstrung a bit and a combined rider and bike weight limit come into place um, mm-hmm. for that race. And since then, she's gone 11th at Bruno, which needs to be qualified a little bit by the fact that there was a red flag before the race had finished. So she might have been able to improve on that in the race that remained, but she didn't. Uh, and then 10th at Misano, 10th at Portimao. Um, and what would really worry me from Gana Carrasco's point of view um, last weekend is the fact that she was at the back of the leading group throughout the race and at no stage three did she ever look like climbing for, towards the front of it. No, she she wasn't really racing the people in front of her. That that was the problem here. Was she was always basically just st- trying to stay with the leading group um, more than anything else, rather than fighting amongst it to try and be a contender for the win. And then, of course, by the end of it, the Rue had already gone um, at the end of the race to, to break off and then would go, and would go on to win. So, yeah, it's it's it is a concern for Carrasco. Like her, her lead. It, 20 points a couple of rounds ago. It's hemorrhaging. It's down to 10 now. It's going to be another case of can Daru make up the difference in time? And like again, I do not want Scott Daru directly behind me in the championship standings. He's been fast in, in this class right from day one. Um, and, you know, and to be fair, Carrasco needs winner. to be thankful in one respect because Daru has crashed on the final lap twice this year. Um, exactly. when he could have had good results he did that in Imola when he was in that second group which were about a fortnight behind Carrasco it has to be said in that race um, mm. and then he was in the you know, the, the leading group at Mazzano on the last lap when he fell off Not he wasn't going to win the race but he was certainly going to score decent points um, right. as it is um, he's 10 behind we have a four way title fight going into next weekend um, finale at Magnicor we did think initially it was going to be 5 um, but Borja Sanchez who had taken the finish in 10th um, was turfed out with the result in the end. Um, well, he, in fact, he finished higher than that, but he was turfed out due to track limits, and he was given a penalty that took him out of the points. So he is 32 back um, in sixth in the championship. We have four contenders next weekend. Anna Carrasco leads it on 90 points. Scott Drew is second on 80. Mika Perez, who's not won a race this season, but he's had seconds in each of the last two races. Um, he's 18 off the lead. And Luca Grunwald, winner at Assen um, on the KTM, versus three Kawasaki's is fourth on 20, on 68 points. That's 22 off the lead. It has been a bit of a jumbled up season, it has to be said, Dre. So it, in many ways, we're getting the finale that this championship has kind of deserved. It's going to be wide open next weekend in Magni Corps. Anna Carrasco has to finish on the podium. If she finishes on the podium, she's champion whatever Scott DeRue does. Um, but that is by no means a foregone conclusion at the moment, is it? Far from it. Again, she's just not been good enough since since the rule changes came into play, and that's going to open the door for someone like Daru. I wouldn't rule that Perez yet either, given that he's consistently up there, has been for both both the first two seasons we've had Super Sport 300 as well. So, yeah, like if uh, like Carrasco needs to needs to unload everything into this last race because anything less, and I fear Daru might steal this championship right at the death. Yeah, Daru, who won the first two ever Supersport 300 races to take place at the start of last year, then hadn't won again since um, until mm. last weekend. Uh, but he's peaking at just the right time. Um, just to give you a bit of a rundown, we, we'd be here all night if we gave you the full list of um, mathematical 
permutations into next weekend. It'll be much easier just to follow the race as it goes. Um, but as I mentioned, if Anna Carrasco finishes on the podium, she's the champion come what may. Um, Scott Drew must finish in the top five to have any chance um, of keeping the title alive. Nica Perez must finish in the top two. And Luca Grunwald simply has to win. Um, that's that's probably the simplest way of explaining it. Um, next mm. weekend at Magnicor, a four-way title finale uh, in Supersport 300. Um, let's give you the uh, actual race result then um, from last weekend. Because Scott Derue, actually, before we give you the result, we should praise Derue, Dre, because yes. it, it, it's proven in recent years, well, in the last two years since this class has been around, it's not easy to break away from a group in, in Supersport 300. But that was essentially how Derue won the race. He was at the front of that group throughout, and then with two or three laps to go, he just pulled the pin. Yeah, which is really hard to do on these bikes that have only 50 horsepower. And, you know, pretty, really easy. The toe is so overpowered um, in, in, in these lightweight degrees of lack of power and whatnot. And Daru's just taken off. He's just found another gear in the last two laps of that race. And, yeah, completely broke the field on that one, so which is a very, very impressive thing to do. I mean, again, we were gushing when Carrasco was doing that in her two mm. dominant victories earlier this season. So it's only fair we do the same for Scott Derue here, who again, again, he remember he's also riding the same Kawasaki that Carrasco is on right now. And yeah, despite the fact it's been nerfed, Derue is, is yeah, he's ridden the legs off it to get it up there and to break the field of that. Was very impressive indeed. Yeah, very impressive. And he he took the victory at the end by um, what is quite a margin by Super Three Hundred standards of one point two seconds. Um, over Mika Perez in second place on the parking go Kawasaki Manuel Gonzalez taking a podium in third um, just you know a tenth of a second behind Perez and 25 thousandths ahead of Robert Shotman who is the teammate to Daru um, and he'll certainly have a role to play next weekend uh, Enzo De La Vega in fifth Tom Edwards who took his maiden pole on the Saturday in sixth the Australian uh, Danny Valle seventh uh, Hernandez the wildcard eighth Doran Larrero ninth now this is interesting he is the teammate, the South African teammate to Carrasco. Yet he finished one place and two tenths ahead of his teammate. They were ninth and tenth. May Carrasco prove uh, to rue that lost point um, at the end of the season. Uh, we will wait and see. Uh, championship standings there with one race to go. We've given you the top four, but let's give you the full rundown. Carrasco leads it on 90 points from Daru on 80. Perez third on 72. Uh, and Grunwald fourth on 68. Those are your championship contenders next weekend. Doran Larrero fifth on 60. Borja Sanchez, uh, who would have been a title contender had he not been thrown out of the points after the race had finished last weekend, he's sixth on 58. Galang Hendra, who won at Bruneau back in uh, back in June, is seventh on 52. Kun Muffles, who won the opening race of the season and has since lost his ride with the KTM team, is eighth on 49. Glenn Van Stralen is ninth on 47. And Manuel Gonzalez is tenth on 43 on the back of back-to-back podiums. Um, now, very quickly... Superstock 1000. It is the last, well, in all probability, the last Superstock 1000 championship, uh, the European championship that's taking place this season as they streamline the World Superbike program essentially to mirror what we see in MotoGP with a premier class, a midweight class, and a lightweight class. Um, Stock 1000 is going to be kind of rendered obsolete. Um, I'm not going to do my Matt Hardy impression before anyone asks for it. Um, but Marcus Reiterberger looks like he's going to go out as the final champion. Uh, in this class, although he didn't clinch it last weekend, Dre. Um, he finished third behind the Italians, Roberto Tamburini and Federico Sandi. But Marcus Reiterberger is a rider that I know you've been very high on, and he has been the class of the field in this Stock 1000 season, and a rider who, to all intents and purposes, belongs on the World Superbike grid. 
He really does. I mean, again, he's top eight, top tens on a frequent basis on the, on the Altea BMW bike, which, again, Altea has always been struggling for, for, for ways to compete, and the BMW don't support um, the Altea team. They don't, they don't support their bikes in um, um, in general when it comes to racing. They, they're very much hands-off. They'll give you the bike, but that's about as far as it goes. You're on your own after that. So, Marcus Reiterberger was a very impressive talent in that time, and it was very unlucky to have lost his seat in the paddock after suffering back problems um, throughout last season. Had to pull out of the season early on, which is a shame for a guy who was only 24 back then to, to have you know, riding problems like that. But he's back. He's ridden very well in Superstock 1000 this year. And I hope he's back in the main paddock next year because he's more than good enough to be on there right now. Mm, yeah, he is. He's doing a, a tremendous job. And he has been the class of the field this season, although he's had a couple of sort of steady races that have enabled his main championship contenders to keep in touch with him. Led by Roberto mm-hmm. Tamburini, who won the race um, last weekend. His first win of the season... Um, but because it's such a short championship in Stock Towers and they only go to the European round, so it's an eight-race championship, much like Super Sport 300. Um, as long as you're consistent throughout the season and don't lose many points, you can stay in contention, which is what Tamburini has done. Um, Max Sheeb had gone in as the lead championship challenger to Reiterberger, but he had a poor weekend and could only finish fifth. Um, Reiterberger, had he finished uh, in the top two, he would have won the championship last weekend. Um, oh, sorry, had he won the race and Tamburini would have lost the points as a result of that, he would have won the title. As it is, he goes to Magni Corps next weekend with an 18-point championship lead um, over the Italian Tamburini. And given that Reiterberg has won three races this season, four actually, to uh, Tamburini's one, uh, Reiterberg only needs seven points from the final race next weekend. So if he finishes ninth or better at Magni Corps, uh, then Reiterberg will win the Stock Thousand Championship. Um, Sheep and Tamburini both need to finish second or higher and then hope for the best. Um, essentially, um, next weekend. Um, the result from uh, Portimao, then, it was Tamburini, the winner, from Federico Sandi, the Italian on the Aruba Ducati uh, Panigale, uh, in second place. Um, Sandi was wild carding. Reiterberg, third, ahead of Florian Marino on the Yamaha in fourth. Max Sheeb, the Chilean, in fifth, uh, ahead of Alessandro Della Bianco on the Altea BMW, sixth. Luca Salvadori, seventh, Noticing a lot of Italian names here. It is a very Italian-heavy championship. Mm-hmm. Um, Gabriele Ruyu, who's a Spaniard who will be racing in World Superbikes next year with Team Pedicini, finished eighth. And have Jan Buen, the German, who is the teammate to Reiterberger. And Alex Schacht, who is a Dane, uh, riding for the team in his own name, who took <laughs> the final place uh, in the top ten. Championship standings then were one race to go. Reiterberger 18, clear of Tamburini, and 19, clear of Sheep. Um, as I say, Reiterberg only needs a top nine finish next weekend to win the title. Um, Federico Sandi is up to fourth, ahead of Florio Marino, fifth. Luca Vitali, sixth. Ricardo Russo, seventh. Del Bianco, eighth. Ruyu, ninth. And Luca Salvadori in tenth position. And finally, World Superbikes, which tells you uh, kind of how impressive and how exciting these races were um, last weekend. But, but let's give the man of the hour his due because... Uh, we're going to have a discussion in a minute about him not being exciting enough. Um, what we can not say about his riding on track is that Jonathan Ray is never, um, you know, he's, he's always uh, electrifying. He's always exciting to watch. Uh, and he's just far too good for them, isn't he? He's, amazingly, it's the first time he's won three double uh, double race weekends in a row, uh, which given how dominant he's been for the last four years, is quite a surprising statistic. Um, mm. But it, it was just just peak Jonathan Ray, wasn't he? He wasn't the fastest of them all in qualifying, as he's not often been this year. Um, it was Eugene Laverty who beat him to pole this time, as we'll talk about in a second. But 
Um, he is just the best front runner, isn't he? He didn't lead from the front necessarily in race two, and he obviously didn't start from the front in race one. But once he got to the front, there was no stopping him. Yeah, he's just now the undisputed king here. He's now able to control these races so well. Um, again, especially in race two, Vandermark, he was never able to really get completely take off from from MVDM, but uh, you know he was in. He never looked like he wasn't going to win. He looked like he was always in complete control. Um, in and and that's been the story of Jonathan Ray for the last two or three two or three race weekends. He's just been unbeatable in, um, and he he knows what he has to do in order to get to the front of the field. And then when he gets to the front of the field, stay there. And he's only getting better and better as his, as these race weekends come along. And once again, just untouchable. I mean, the first one I think was his sixty fifth in World Superbike, so sixty five four sixty five. Yeah. Well, formally, I guess, in that sense, but. Yeah, again, just another sensational weekend for Jonathan Ray, where he's just virtually unstoppable now at this point. And it's a matter of when he wins the world title now, rather than if most likely, you know, race two, a Magni Core next weekend, maybe even race one, uh, depending on mitigation, but circumstances behind him, who knows? But, uh, Again, like again, it wasn't it wasn't the most exciting race weekend in the world for Jonathan up the front, unfortunately. But that's just how the cookie crumbles. Sometimes there is no dominance. Dominance and uh, entertainment are two very very different things in motorsport. And uh, yeah, Jonathan once again just did a resoundingly brilliant job. Yeah, it's a shame really in some respects because it's a champion, it's a circuit that I think we all absolutely adore in motorcycle racing. Oh, it's, it's a brilliant track. circuit um, with its undulations and its its fast corners. It is a great racetrack. Mm-hmm. Um, and as it's proven, the best rider of them all is the best at riding around it. Um, mm-hmm. and Jonathan Ray, his his race one victory, as I say, he got the whole shot at the start of the race from the front row of the grid, although he wasn't on pole, um, and then led away with it. Marco Valandu was his nearest challenger in race one, couldn't keep up, and Jonathan Ray only won it by about a second and a half in the end of race one, but that rather flattered uh, Melandri in second because Ray was obviously wheeling and uh, grandstanding over the line and could have won by a lot more than that. Um, mm. Race two was a little less clear-cut in that Vandermark kept him honest um, towards the end of the race. Vandermark never had Jonathan Ray, you know, found overhead that Ray could relax. Uh, it was only ever one mistake away from Vandermark being right on him, but Jonathan Ray was able to control it um, and take his 66th uh, career win um, in race two. He has, of course, got the all-time wins record. He could next weekend Dre at Magni Corps match Carl Fogarty for four world titles and. Once he does that, because he will do that, if not next weekend, he'll do it before the end of the season, he'll win his fourth title. Will that almost settle the argument of Jonathan Ray being the greatest world superbike rider of all time? It probably does. I mean, the difference between him and Carl is that Jonathan's won four consecutive world titles in world superbikes, and that is a kicker in its own right to be the like and not even that there's just the level of dominance he has had to win these four yeah, titles. He's only just won them. No, he's caned the field, and it's a good field with some very talented guys in there. You know, former world champions, you know, like Tom Sykes, Chaz Davis, who's been a perennial top contender. You know, Michael Vandermark, who's been, again, another top contender, and, you know, probably the brightest young talent that side of the the rider development bracket has had in the last five or six years. Alex Lowe's is a domestic BSB champion in his own right. You know, it's a very talented field. You can't ask for much more from guys that aren't in the MotoGP ladder, which is, again, its own separate discussion in its own right. And, you know, the pros and cons and weighing up talent evaluation from that. 
Um, but Jonathan has won or probably will end up winning four straight. He's completely dominating. And let's not forget this year, this was the year more than any others where Dorna has actively tried to stop him from winning so much. Like, let's not get it twisted. We all, I know it. You know it. We all know it. These rules were brought in to nerf Kawasaki, and it has not worked. The factory is, is, is adapted, and Jonathan has adapted himself. And, like, once he destroyed Chas Davis at, at Imola earlier this year, which was used to be a Chas Davis staple circuit, I was like, yep, we're done here. Um, so, so, for me, I, I think Jonathan will end up finishing this season as the greatest superbike rider I think we have ever seen and to win you know four straight titles and win I think more or less half the races in the last four years to get to this point is is utterly remarkable and just you may never see a run of form quite like that ever again quite frankly it is it is insane what he's doing on a motorcycle right now and, um, and um, may it not yeah. be diminished anytime soon. Help me out, Adrian. I don't know whether you can remember the number without me having to check to Wikipedia. What was the points record he set last year? Uh, I want to say it was six. I want to say it was. We named the episode. I want to say it was sixty-five. Uh, well, I want to look on that because he. he, he I don't, Give I think, me a minute. I'm pretty certain he could get close to it this year if he wins every race to go. And you know who would put that past him? Um, uh, Jonathan Ray. Sorry, my bad. I got I got the numbers the wrong way around. Five hundred and fifty-six. He could beat that this year. He Are you could... serious? Yeah. Well, there's there's still 150 points to play for yet. Um, you know, there's there's three three weekends of two races each, so each weekend has 50 points to play for. If he wins the final six races, he ends up on 570. Um, uh, there, there's breathing room there. Yeah. So he could afford a you second know, or two. He can afford a couple of seconds, and he doesn't have to worry about going to this year, which is one of his weaker circuits on paper. Yeah. If he's he'll, strong he'll in Argentina, look out. Round happens. Yeah. Um, there's talk that that round may not still happen because of the circuit not being ready or they're going to go to maybe a skeleton sort of circuit um, with just the bare minimum in place around there at El Villicum in Argentina. Um, but yeah, Jonathan Ray, in a season where, as Dre mentioned, they've, they've essentially set out the regulations to try and equalise the bikes um, and therefore slow down Jonathan Ray by extension. Uh, and Jonathan Ray didn't exactly have the greatest of starts to the season. He wasn't on the podium in the first race in Australia. Um, only won one of the first four. Um, but, yeah, he could break his own all-time points record this season, which which would be extraordinary. Um, and it was funny, one thing you said there, Dre, where it's like you can't ask much more of, of the field and you can't ask much more of Jonathan Ray. Well, unless your name is Gregorio Lavia, if only Johnny could be a bit more charismatic. If only he had a bit more charisma. Yeah. Hmm. What a um, shit. But but it's like it, it's it's the old it's this old. I mean, Michael Schumacher got this for years in the mid the early mid two thousands when he was winning championships, particularly the two thousand and two and two thousand and four titles, where he was winning it easily and and the sport and the man he was dominating it were criticised of being boring. Um, but uh, some people seem to people seem to forget in all of this that. Jonathan Ray does not owe it to anybody to be, quote-unquote, charismatic. And that's even if you think he's boring, which I don't think he is for a second. Um, no. I think he's a, he's a very funny guy, very witty guy. He, he's a shoot, you know, he shoots straight when he talks to us. Um, you know, he doesn't mince his words. And you just need to go back to those Eurosport interviews after that Laguna Seca between him and Tom Sykes. Neither of them were taking a backward step in those interviews, were they? Um, no. So, you know, he's good for the odd dynamite sort of soundbite. Um but 
I don't get this, Dre. Do people think that when riders are being dominant, they owe it to us not only to be great motorcycle riders, but to be humorous raconteurs as well? I don't, I've, I've never understood this in not only motorsports, but sport in general. Like There's only a very small handful of, I would say, truly transcendent personalities in sport. You know, like a Roger Federer or a Ronnie O'Sullivan or a Usain Bolt. You know, guys that are just naturally so charismatic that they are able to draw in fans across the spectrum of sports and, you know, general you know, society and life in general. That's a rare and that's a hard thing to do. Like that, like that is, and you know what? That is something that not every guy is going to be capable of. Like I've said, I've had people on my curious casting before, like, oh, Dre, why isn't Sebastian more of a star? And I'm like, well, he doesn't want to be. That's the thing about him. He keeps his personal life very private. He's, he, he, he actively shuns the media on a lot on a lot of extra. He doesn't do a lot of extracurricular activities that will open himself up like Lewis Hamilton does. Who's a, a mentioned before? It's the complete opposite. He is he is he is charismatic. He is more of a showman. He does you know, a lot of things that we don't expect F1 drivers to do. It's the same ball game here. Jonathan Ray is, and you know, there's going to be one obvious name to compare him to, and it's going to be Valentino Rossi. And you know, I know it again. You know it. He is the biggest showman motorsports probably ever seen. Um, two wheels or four, quite frankly. And asking Jonathan to be like Valentino, who let's not forget won five straight world championships to start the two thousands. Um, oh, those are exciting. They weren't. He he. On average, he won most of them by over a hundred points. Like he was miles better than everyone else he was competing against at the time. Sorry, Max. Um, but sorry, Seto. there's no getting. Yeah, sorry, Seto. Um, there's no getting around it. Valentino Rossi destroyed MotoGP in the early 2000s, but he was so charismatic and he was such a showman that they got away with asking more serious questions about what they could do to make the sport a bit more balanced. Because he was so charismatic and he was such a draw, nobody cared. So I get why Levy has come out with this this statement like Ray needs more charisma. Yeah, because that's, if that's Ray a point had... worth making, actually. We didn't mention this. It was Gregorio <laughs> Levia that said this about Jonathan Ray not yes. being charismatic. He is the world superbike sporting director, for goodness sake. Yeah, that's that's one of the highest ranking dudes in the series coming out and saying this, which is baffling that he's come out with that sort of comment. Like... As King points out, listening to this show right now, he's putting it in our Discord server right now. Champions can't, championships can't pick their champions. It's the luck of the draw on whether the series has a charismatic champion. You have to work with what you've got. And it's the funny thing about that is, is that Jonathan Ray is, an, uh, I think, a more charismatic person than people give him credit for. Tell you what, World Superbikes could try and market him a bit better. <laughs> World Superbikes marketing. You mean the you mean the sporting clause that has to ask its fans how how to make its series more appealing? And what, mm. what, what name we should be calling it? Funny that. Um, it's, it's almost like the two are linked or something. Um, but no, like Jonathan is a I think genuinely a more charismatic person than I think the on track behavior. Um, you know. I think he's a bit wittier, a bit sharper, and a bit more. He's a bit more intense than I think people give him credit for. Uh, we saw it with with his interviews of Eurosport. We've seen it when he was confronted by Chaz Davies during Hassan last year, and they almost had a punch up when when Davies lost his qualifying lap. Um, you know, 
Dorna, you're the guys who are worth billions of pounds. You have the marketing budget to promote your series. You have a transcendent four-time world champion elect in your back pocket, and yet the majority of biking fans don't know who he is. That's a you problem, not a Jonathan Ray problem. Like, like... The man's, I mean, the man's got his autobiography coming out next week as well. His autobiography is out next week. So it's just bound to have a bunch of interesting stuff in there. He's from Northern Ireland. And oh, did I mention who finished second in the BBC Sports Personality of the Year poll last year? That's right, Jonathan Ray. Funny that. A popularity contest. He came out second and only lost by a few thousand votes to Mo fucking Farah, <laughs> one of the most successful British athletes of the last two decades. Do you know who else um, is in that vote? Lewis Hamilton. Uh, one of the guys yes, we've been talking about who's, who's got one of those transcendent personalities that, um, that World Superbike seems so desperate for. Uh, yeah, it's, exactly. You ask, you ask anyone in Northern Ireland if, if Jonathan Ray lacks charisma. Um, and then run swiftly once you've said it, um, because because I think that's just such a such a ludicrous thing to say. Um, mm. Just to give you the full quotes from uh, Gregorio Olivia, because um, he said this to Eurosport. Uh, we have the best, but maybe he is not the most charismatic guy. These things are causing people to lose interest, but we're not doing anything to change this. The best will win, and congratulations to him. Um, so he does he does acknowledge the fact that you know the series isn't exactly helping itself in terms of. Uh, it's champion not being the most mm. charismatic guy in Gregorio Levia's uh, humble and in our view wrong opinion, um, but it is what it is. And uh, Jonathan Ray could well be um, a four-time world champion um, within the next seven days or so. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, he couldn't win it in race one at Magni Corps next weekend. Um, if he doesn't, he almost certainly win it in race two. If he wins race one next weekend and Chaz Davies fails to finish second, then Jonathan Ray is the world champion for 2018. Uh, in as much as what happened at Portimao, then outside of the dominant race winner of both races one and two, the two riders on the podium uh, with Jonathan Ray uh, on Saturday and Sunday were the same, Marco Melangio and Michael Vandermark, although they stood on different sides of the podium um, based on which day you're talking about. It was Melandry second to, uh, ahead of Vandermark in race one. Vandermark second in race two, though, Dre, ahead of Melandry. Um, and whisper mm. it quietly, Michael Vandermark is only 20 points off Chaz Davies and second in the World Championship. Michael Vandermark has a real shot of ending the season as the best rider in World Superbikes, not named Jonathan Ray, which would be a real feather in his and Yamaha's cap. Yeah, I mean, okay, you could say the rules may not have worked on this one, I mean, they, but they are closer than what they were last year. So from that standpoint, it's been a success. Yamaha has been more competitive, and Vandermark has, has, has reaped the rewards of a more competitive Yamaha package with Oreo, with that double victory he had in Donington, and now his third straight podium finish, which, you know, Yamaha are actually now on the podium on a semi-consistent basis, which is great. That's exactly where they need to be. And Vandermark has very, very well this year all the way through. Only one DNF all season long from Michael Vandermark as well, which is a key factor in all this. He's not had to ride hurt on two occasions like Chaz Davis had, had as well, where Davis is still in recovery from a separated copper run, which, again, to be fair, Davis did a phenomenal job to have two fourth places this weekend, despite breaking said collarbone only a, a, a week or so prior. But, uh, yeah, Van Lamarck is doing a sensational job. He, you can't ask for much more than what he's doing on that Yamaha right now. And, again, even third would be a phenomenal result for Yamaha in the, in the overall championship, because given that Lowe's has tailed off a bit. But if he could... If he could just maybe creep out 20 points on Chaz over the last three weekends. 
if Van der Mott finished second overall, to be the best of the rest prize winner behind Jonathan Ray would be a phenomenal achievement for him and for the Yamaha team in general to have a guy rank that high in the championship. Hmm, absolutely. It would, be, it would be a great achievement. It's, it's funny where Yamaha, they, I wouldn't necessarily argue they've closed the gap on Kawasaki over the course of a season where you just need to look at the points for that, but they've certainly moved past Ducati, it seems, at the moment. Um, how much of that is due to you know the, the underperforming and slightly under-fitness riders that Ducati have at the moment, particularly in terms of Davies, who's had his injury problems um, this season, um, and Melandri, who would, with the greatest respect, appear to be slightly over the hill by now. Um, mm. Ducati have fallen behind, and you know how Ducati get on next season, of course, with the new bike may see them come back into mi- into the mix. It depends on who you uh, listen to as to how well that new uh, Panigale is going um, ahead of its debut in the World Championship next season. Um, so that'll be interesting. Yamaha will have to respond uh, to that. Uh, but Van der Mark is having a tremendous season at the moment. I've mentioned Ducati, and I mentioned Charles Davies, who is now trying to defend second in the championship, as well, although he is still mathematically in the World Championship and mathematically only. Um, he only finished fourth three in both races at Portimao, but under the circumstances, I think we need to praise Charles Davies for riding with a collarbone that he'd broken for the second time in the summer break and had only broken it a week or two prior to Portimao. Yeah, he still rides in both races and actually kept Jonathan Ray at bay for longer than I expected him to in race two. Yeah, especially in race two. Yeah, as you said, like he actually held Jonathan off for a little while there before Jonathan finally came through. Chaz has no business being on a motorcycle quickly. Um, but yet, here we are. Bike riders are not normal human beings. Um, but yes, quite right. Chaz deserves praise. He, he rode very well. He, he did a brilliant job of dealing with the pain factor. I mean, when Charlie Hiss got interviewed him after race two to, 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 to sum up how it was like riding with that broken bone he said and i quote i can't say how i really feel on tv um which kind of says it all really about dealing with a broken bone. and let's not forget like let's not forget just how nasty it can be i mean christian did his you know two weeks ago at silverstone's weekend and he had, he had to pull out of said bsb weekend for his own safety so let's not forget what Chaz was doing was dangerous and risky um, but he was able to keep on top of himself. Thank goodness he didn't crash and further damage the collarbone. And yeah, he was able to you know, take in two very solid fourth place finishes, um, despite dealing with the pain factor and the injury as well. So yeah, great, great, great performance from Chaz Davis and much needed for his second place in the title race. Absolutely. Um, second in the championship looks to be gone for Tom Sykes. He finished fifth in both races and he looks like he may end up finishing fifth um, in the World Championship now as Marco Melandri is starting to chase him down. Um, but there's one other team that we're going to mention before we move on to uh, British Superbikes, and that's Aprilia. Um, because a bit of a mixed bag of a weekend, a bit of a bittersweet one for them, Dre, because they took, uh, in the case of Milwaukee, their first ever World Superbike pole position um, on the Saturday with Eugene Laverty, who set a new all-time track record um, on the Saturday in Super Pole to beat Jonathan Ray to pole position. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it went sour within two corners when he was punted off the road by Chavi Forrest. Um, so it didn't Sorry. quite go their way. And, and they finished sixth and seventh with Savadori ahead of Laverty in race two. Um, Laverty, having not finished race one, had to start from 10th on the grid in race two. So that explains why he could only make it up as high as seventh. Um, a race weekend where they showed plenty of promise, Aprilia, but on a circuit where they were probably expecting to be stronger than they were at any other circuit this season don't really have the results to show for it it's a shame yeah because again a pretty went very well this year but again they ran out of tire that was the problem last year but they were they were circling 
Portimao was a strong track for him, a track where they could you know, potentially challenge for a podium position out here. And again, Lavsy did a sensational job by qualifying on pole position around here with a new all-time track record as well, but it all just fell apart. Xavi Forez has uh, struggled in the second half of the season, really, um, since after his lightning-quick start, he suddenly seemed to have fallen down the order on the um, um, on that satellite Ducati package. And yeah, just a bit, a bit of a sloppy riding from Froes. They didn't see Laverty and Laverty goes down. It's again, just an, an unfortunate accident there. Nothing really anybody could do about that one. And uh, yeah, it's it's hurt them big um, on this occasion there. Because again, this was, this was a big round for a prettier room on paper. And yeah, the results don't tell the full story. Laverty, a retirement and a seventh. Salvadoria, a retirement and a sixth. It's just, it's not what a prettier would have been hoping for. It's just a shame. Yeah, it is a shame. Um, although, to be fair to them, and you know, in the in the context of the other manufacturers, they actually had a decent weekend when you compare it to the likes of, shall we say, Honda. Um, as you'll find Oof. out when I give you the results. Uh, race one went to Jonathan Ray from Malandri and Vandermark with Davies fourth, Sykes fifth, Loris Baz on the BM up in sixth. That's as good as he's been all season. Good ride, um, Baz. So well done to him. Um, Jordi Torres uh, on the MV. We've got more on him in a bit. Um, he finished seventh ahead of Toprak Rasgatioglu eighth. Michael Ruben Rinaldi, ninth, um, and Alex Lowe's, who had a very poor weekend, as evident by the fact that we haven't mentioned him at all yet. Um, mm. He's only 10th in race one, um, ahead of Tati Mercado, Yoni Hernandez, Jake Gagne on the first of the Hondas, 13th, uh, and the only Honda to see the finish, uh, with Roman Ramos, the last classified finisher in 14th position. Race two, uh, Ray the winner again. This time it was Vandermark beating Malandri to second. Davies and Sykes fourth and fifth again, as they were the previous day. Savadori and Aprilia on the Aprilia. Savadori and Laverty, should I say, on the Aprilias, sixth and seventh. Ahead of Rinaldi, Baz, and Forez, who got his only points finished of the weekend. Alex Lowe's only 11th in race two, ahead of Gagne, who was again top Honda, ahead of Torres and Leon Camia, who was only 14th. Uh, Leandro Mercado took the final point. In the second race of the weekend, Jonathan Ray's championship lead then. Um, it's a massive yawning chasm, but if you want the quantifying, it's 116 points. Um, if he extends that to 125 <laughs> by the end of race one at Magni Corps, he wins the title. Um, Michael Vandermark is third on 284, so he's only 20 points behind Davies in second. Tom Sykes is fourth on 240, so he's 44 behind Vandermark, but only 11 ahead of Melandri in fifth, which is uh, probably his battle for the rest of the year now. Uh, Alex Lowe's is sixth on 204, Forrest seventh on 170, Laverty eighth on 122. Rasgatioglu 9th on 108, and Loris Baz is into the top 10 again on 103, just a point ahead of Lorenzo Savadori. Next round of all four classes that you've just heard us discussing is next weekend for the final European round of the season at Magni Corps, which, as we've mentioned, sees the Super Stock 1000 and Super Sport 300 championships reach their conclusion. Back across the British shores and BSB and the start of the British Superbike Showdown at Alton Park uh, in Cheshire. And before we get on to the Showdown 6 and how they got on, Dre, um, we have to start by talking about the leader of the uh, BSB Riders' Cup, or he was the leader going in, um, the rider who uh, narrowly missed out on a place in the showdown outright, Danny Buchan, um, who has subsequently lost the lead of the Riders' Cup. 
um, due to a heavy crash at the end of qualifying three as he was chasing pole position. Um, he went plowing into the barriers on the outside of Lodge Corner, um, mm. was subsequently concussed, and British Superbikes uh, as a championship, uh, whilst Danny Bucker was taking the headache tablets, it was BSB taking a sensible pill and pulling him out of the race weekend. Yeah, definitely the right decision there. We've we've, we've talked on, on Bike Live extensively about concussions in bike racing and how you know they they seem to have gone overlooked until recently. And I'm glad again this year that more racing series are taking the time out to look for concussions, find them, and then subsequently remove them from the weekend. Because we've mentioned it before, I'll mention it again. Second impact syndrome can kill in bike racing, and having a second major head in head head impact or head injury during a, a race weekend can be fatal so it's it's paramount that if if you if you've diagnosed somebody with a concussion they cannot ride again that weekend for sure um that is a nail that should be a nailed on rule across all bike all bike racing and motorsport in general so yes i mean of course you know glad bucking is okay he was very funny possible to be fair it's like i said oh yeah i had some scans i'm gonna take part this weekend but they found the brain which is a positive yes, um well was was Bucken's quote on Twitter that um on on Saturday, um so yeah luckily he's he's okay um and is on the mend he'll be back for Assen, um but uh, yeah so the absolutely BSB doing the right thing pulling Bucken. yeah um Danny Bucken sat out the two races on uh, on Sunday and as I mentioned lost the lead in the Riders Cup as a result of it the the main story though of course was the race for the title um between Jake Dixon. Um, and Leon Haslam, and that's with all due respect to the other four riders who also made the showdown but were a lot further back um, in terms of the points. Um, now, we, we've asked the question, I suppose, Dre, you know, what will it take to stop Leon Haslam? And we kind of worried when he had that massive high side at Silverstone, um, mm-hmm. such a big high side that we named last week's podcast after him. Um, yes. That, uh, that, you know, just when the championship is getting important now with the showdown starting, that Haslam's bad luck may suddenly arrive in a flood. Um, now, he escaped injury with that massive high side um, at Silverstone, but lo and behold, he turns up for the first proper showdown around Alton Park, qualifying one, he's not even got a lap time on the board, and the bike goes pop. Of course it does, because Leon Haslam cannot have nice things. Yeah. Back of um, the-, the grid, start for race one, and it's pissing down with rain, and I mentioned that bike went boom base for lack of a better term on that one i think that's the technical term for it um and yeah had to had to start a race one i think it was 22nd on the grid as a as a result of um basically not being able to get a lap in and yeah just as mentioned um haslam has been so utterly brilliant in in the regular season format and uh, as he as he was very quick to point out on instagram if we still were going by regular season rules haslam would have won the title this weekend yeah <laughs> Sadly, he hasn't, and, and he's had his championship lead reduced um, to just 31 points um, um, as a result of uh, this weekend and Jake Dixon's double victory, which we'll get to. But um, yes, uh, Haslam, the bad luck has come early. Please let that be the last of it. I don't think it's going to be right if anyone but Haslam wins this championship, which would make me very sad because he's been phenomenal. And he was phenomenal again this weekend in the context of this race weekend. And uh, yeah, just the bike going pop. And uh, ha- ha- Haslam, like, please, just just bring it home now. I, I, I don't want to see him not win it now. It would be awful if something happened to him that would that would yank it out from underneath him now. But uh, yeah, making the best of a bad deal, Haslam was still very, very good this weekend. He's his usual glossy self. 
there was a great Twitter exchange actually just on that, um, which I've only just read for the first time now. I've only actually read the replies to it. Dre might have seen this already, but I'll bring you it anyway. Leon Haslam did tweet, just been told we have actually won the normal format championship with five races left. Big thanks to Bournemouth Kawasaki and Kawasaki UK. Just the BSB format to get now um, with two sort of um, <laughs> you know, bicep flexing emojis. Um, Jonathan Ray replies to that. Um, winning the proper points championship this far out shows you deserve it. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to win a three-round championship to justify it. Um, Stuart Higgs, <laughs> head on to your BSB, replies, that's the most charismatic thing you've said today. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Fantastic. Jonathan Ray replies, glad you liked it. Um, very good uh, touche um, but uh, but yeah in terms of the championship itself then uh, Jake Dixon the nearest challenger going in started it 45 points or whatever it was behind um, Leon Haslam at the start of the showdown he he has to say he delivered on what we've been hoping to see him deliver for a while now which is win somewhere other than Knock Hill and not only was it a race weekend Dre that Jake Dixon badly needed but it was probably just a result that BSB needed yeah, if Haslam had another double win, championship lead would be 50-plus points, most likely going into Assen. You're probably thinking he leaves Assen as champion, most likely. I mean, it may not even need the triple header at Brands. It was a bit like, again, I remember going years back when Josh Brooks, it was three years ago now when Brooks won his BSB title in 2015. He'd already won the title before I'd even gotten there for Sunday's racing because by winning race one, he'd already won the title. And on Sunday, he'd even gotten Paul Bird to give him special permission to run the number one plate. Yeah. Because Paul Bird is sporting like that. Oh, But uh, yeah, like to, to say the least, um, the series probably needed this one. Haslam is still probably going to win this title. Um, he's still, you know, heavily odds on favourite to do that. But on the other hand, like Dixon's doing a phenomenal job right now to make it at least a little bit interesting going into Brands Hatch. Again, he needed to win somewhere that wasn't Knock Hill, and he's done just that. Took advantage of the situation and rode very, very well to win both those races. There, I mean, race one, you know, dangerous wet conditions, always precarious. And, you know, he was he was in a, a, a big fight with with uh, with Laverty and, and, and Bridewell and whatnot in, in that situation. Um, and, you know, the front of the field was pretty stacked. Um, and then, you know, wet races are always dodgy. But, yeah, Dixon did, did a very, very good job to win both races. He, was, he went out the traps charging in race two. Um, there, as Haslam was, was, you know, was running him down at the end of that race. But, again, Dixon held on. Did the professional job, got yeah, his yeah, his first double victory since that miracle that knock kill last year. So yeah, an, an outstanding weekend for Dixon and just what the series needed to make it a little bit more interesting going into Assen. Yeah, because it, it, what it, we don't quite know yet whether Jake Dixon is going to take a huge. I mean, he's surely got to take a huge confidence lift from this um, to mm. take two wins like that. And as you say, it wasn't just the fact that he won, but it was how he won. Um, because you know there was no fortune attached to it, and I would go as far as to say, and race two kind of proved it, that I think Jake Dixon would have still doubled up even if Haslam had have started race one from the front, um, because yeah, Jake, probably because Jake Dixon was just in all conditions last weekend. Jake Dixon was the fastest man out there. Um, he was quick, quickest right throughout free practice. Um, put it on pole position, um, and then you know I took his time. He was patient with it in race one as he followed Bridewell in those tricky conditions, those sketchy weather conditions early on. But once he got past Bridewell, he pretty much controlled that second, that first race. And in the second race, he almost went out too quick, I think, in the second race, where he pulled out of a five-second yeah. lead and then nearly got chased down by Haslam in the second half of the race. But I, I'd like to think that Dixon always had it under control. 
but whether that race, had it gone another lap or two longer, whether he would have still had it under control, I guess we'll never know. Um, but yeah, it, it remains to be seen whether now having done this, Jake Dixon can then go on to Assen and then back this up again and maybe win again there. Um, he's got to win at least one of the two and Assen to have any chance going to the final round at Brands. He needs to go to the final round at Brands with Leon Hasdam at least under some kind of pressure. Um, mm -hmm. And try and force what we saw last year where Haslam was maybe being a little bit cautious and allowed that points lead to dwindle away before that final race where it all went wrong for him. Um, and, and try and plant those seeds of doubts in his head because Leon Haslam will not like being reminded, Dre, that he has still not won a national level or international level championship in his motorcycle racing career. Um, he's been runner-up mm. on so many occasions. He's been a world superbike runner-up. He's, of course, famously been a BSB runner-up as well. Um, and... Jake Dixon's just got to keep telling himself, if I can keep reducing this lead and whittling it away, maybe those gremlins, maybe those demons will eat away at Haslam and the mistakes may creep in. He's just got to try and ask the question. Exactly. All he's got to do is try and force the issue. All he can do is write to the best of his and hope other shit goes down behind him. Um, that's all he can do at this point. I mean, okay, in most dogfights, he's not going to beat Haslam. That's fine. Um, but all he can do now really is try. If he can just keep attacking like he did at Alton Park and with maximum aggression and just keep 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 throwing the house at it and seeing what happens. We all know Haslam struggles the brands, so who knows? You know, so all he can do is just keep trying to force the issue and seeing what happens. That's all he can do. He's he's done a he's had a brilliant Alton Park weekend. He's been so consistent all year long. He's he's really stepped up to be, you know, the biggest young hitter in, in, in domestic racing now. All he can do is just keep going and just seeing what can happen. And, then, and you know, that's all he can do at this point. Yeah, and, it, and in fairness, Haslam was asked questions, not by Dixon, but by his, his own motorcycle going pop on Saturday. Um, and that could have been the scenario, in fairness to Haslam, that could have been the kind of scenario, wet race, back of the grid, where things can go wrong. Um, mm -hmm, you know, where he could have easily tripped over someone coming through the field and left with no points. And with Dixon winning that first race, that could have seen his lead in one fell swoop drop to 20 points. Uh, one race into the showdown, and then it would have been game on. Um, from there, especially with Dixon then going on to win the second race. Um, but, you know, there were a number of hurdles thrown in Haslam's way last weekend, Dre, and he, he pretty much dealt with them all. I mean, to go from 22nd to 3rd in that first race was a phenomenal piece of riding. Yeah, astonishing. And he passed half the field by the end of the first lap. He was... <laughs> He was up there, just just had an extra level of bravery that nobody else healed. One, um, a, a, a bunch of steel ones going for those first two or three laps or so. Phenomenal stuff. Um, and yeah, like you said, came through twenty second to third. I had a good hard dog fight with with Jason the Halloran for that last podium spot for a little while. But again, rode superbly well in a, in, a, in a race and in and in conditions that were terrible. For bike racing, and you know, Haslam with a title on the line, I think you would have begrudged him if he had, you know, dialed it down a little bit, just made sure he got the bike over the line and take what he could get. But no, he attacks it right from the first corner, and really, at least he got pretty much the best possible results they could have gotten on this one. Um, so yeah, third, that was a, a true champion's performance from Haslam and did exactly what he needed to do. Exactly, he did a, he did a brilliant job and. Yeah, he, uh, as I say, he could quite easily have thrown that at the fence in, in that first race, trying to get through the field. And he showed in that second race that his, his approach isn't really changing, even with that poison. I think that's the best way for him to go at the moment, in that he could quite easily, once he got past O'Halloran in that second race, into a clear second. He could have just taken the 20 points and just 
stroked it home. But he's continuing to go on the attack. He wants to maximise his points return and basically mean that any bad luck that does come his way has less of an effect um, if he's got mm -hmm. more points on the board, which I think is the right way for Hasn to go about it. And he appears to be attacking the showdown, quite literally, in a different way uh, to last year. Um, the fact that we've spoken so much now about Haslam and Dixon would indicate that it is just a two-horse race for the championship now, and it almost certainly is. In fact, it is, practically. Uh, with the other four all falling by the wayside, uh, Josh Brooks, uh, Bradley Ray, Glenn Irwin, and Peter Hickman all having, by their own standards, you know, poor weekends and falling out of contention. I mean, two of those are young-slash-inexperienced riders. One of them in Hickman is a rider who got in the showdown through consistency much like last year but was never really ever taken seriously with all due respect to him as a title contender um, to win the whole thing is the one that we're really i suppose going to be disappointed or have a right to be disappointed with from last weekend drake be josh brooks this was the moment he was supposed to come alive it really was like this like this is josh brooks's domain he is super good at the, in the showdown format he comes alive we all know he's Probably the best in the world around Brands Hatch at the moment. So you would think this would be the time where Brooks needs to knuckle down and get a big performance going. And he crashed it in race one. It's like, oh, gosh darn it. Um, um, Brooks, yeah, Brooks crapped the bed on that one. A, a better in race two for fifth place there, but that's just not going to be good enough. Um, again, against Dixon and Haslam, who are the two strongest guys in the field right now, without, without any question at the moment now. So... Yeah, Brooks was meant to come alive here, and that probably a title-ending mistake. And uh, yeah, spot the trend here. This probably was the story of third, fourth, fifth, and sixth in this showdown in this showdown race. Hmm, absolutely, it looks like Dixon uh, and Haslam are your two title contenders moving on. Um, and in many ways, Dre, some of the other stories, the big stories to come from Morton Park, weren't even anything to do with the title fighters in particular. Perhaps the rider of the weekend, I mean, Jake Dixon doing the double, how can he not be the rider of the weekend? But he has won before. Tommy Bridewell. Um, this rider is he's something of an enigma in BSB in that we've always sort of talked about him as a real talented rider, but he never lands the best rides in the championship. You know, some have obviously questioned his attitude in the past and the fact that he's sometimes difficult to work with. Um, but he clearly has hit it off with that Moto Rapido Ducati team, which isn't exactly a premier team in the British Superbike Championship. And Tommy Bridewell came away from last weekend with a second and a third. What a weekend he had. Stunning stuff from Tommy Bridewell. We've always done his bull of rides like this. He was a former race winner, but he's a great rider. And I mentioned it before, he was one of the MV for eight hours with that fourth place overall finish he had then, basically carrying his team out of there he was exhausted by the end of that eight hour race but then you can see how much it how much it meant to his team he was able to ride so well bridewell is a great rider he really is and like he his results has genuinely been great since he came back with this motor Ducati team um and this is a team that had john hopkins before and hopkins was playing this similar sort of role as almost like a showdown spoiler where he was in the mix to podiums, and again, the team was... It's been an unreliable team in the past. Well, it's had a lot of mechanical gremlins with it as well. But Bridewell has done a brilliant job of this team. And you know, to, to leave to, to leave Alton Park with 36 more points underneath you for a second and a third, a double podium, and now only, I want to say, 10 points off the front of the Riders' Cup um, ahead of you know, O'Halloran, McKinney, Buckingham, and in front of him. 
There's no reason Ridewell can't win the Riders' Cup. He, like He's doing a phenomenal job. He's the man in form. He's riding very well, and he's challenging for victories again. That's exactly what we were hoping for Ridewell a couple of years back. Um, and it's great to see him there taking that Ducati to, to heights where it doesn't normally end up. Mm, yeah, a good weekend, all told, uh, in, in the BSB at Alton Park. As I say, it's kept both championships, if you want to call the Riders' Cup a championship. They're both wide open. Uh, with two race weekends to go, next of which is at Assen uh, next weekend. Uh, here's how the race is finished then. Dixon, the race one winner by over six seconds at the end from Tommy Bridewell in second. Uh, Leon Haslam, uh, third in the end, 16 seconds off the winner, just emphasising that even had he started towards the front, Dixon was just in another league in those conditions on Saturday. Um, or Sunday, should I say, in the first of the two races, which took place in the wetter conditions. Uh, Glenn Irwin was the next rider off the podium in fourth. Not enough, though, to really keep him in any kind of showdown contention. Um, with Michael Laverty fifth, Jason O'Halloran sixth, uh, Taron McKenzie, the sole McCam's Yamaha to make the finishing race one in seventh, ahead of Peter Hickman eighth, James Ellison on the uh, Anvil Higher uh, Yamaha, who's been largely anonymous for most of this season, uh, in ninth, uh, and Dan Limfoot, uh, of course, took a victory uh, here last year. Um, completing the top 10 just ahead of Bradley Ray, um, who was, of course, another showdown competitor to fall by the wayside last weekend. Race 2, Dixon the winner again, this time by just a second and change from Haslam, uh, with Bridewell in third. Tara McKenzie beating his more experienced and uh, much heralded McCann's Yamaha teammate Brooks in a straight fight for fourth. Uh, Glenn Irwin was next up in sixth, ahead of Luke Mossy, who had something of a return to form, qualified up the front and uh, was seventh in race 2. Um, he crashed from a very strong position in race one when he was racing against his teammate. Um, Pete Aikman eighth again in race two. Um, Andy Irwin, second of the BYZ Ducati Irwin brothers in ninth. And James Ellison in tenth. Championship standings then. Uh, with five races to go and two race weekends to go. Next of which is Assen next weekend. Haslam on 6 of 4 um, He leads Jake Dixon by 31 points. Um, he's still just about in contention where Haslam can finish second in every race and still win the title. But another slip up and that may change. Um, Josh Brooks is a way back in third now. He trails by 74 points. With Glen Irwin fourth. Level on points with the Australian. Bradley Ray is fifth on 5-2-4. That's six behind Brooks and Irwin. And Peter Hickman is rooted down in sixth. On 520, the Riders' Cup is led by O'Halloran on 138, seven ahead of Taron McKenzie, uh, and eight ahead of Danny Buchan, nine ahead of Iden. The latter of those two, of course, didn't race last weekend due to their various injuries. Iden still recovering from that collarbone fracture. Uh, and Tommy Bridewell, 11th in the outright championship, fifth technically in the Riders' Cup. Um, and as Dre mentioned, just 10 off the cup leader, uh, which at the moment is Jason O'Halloran. Next round, as I say, is in a week's time in Assen with the triple header finale still to come in October and the GP circuit at Brands. news um and a lot of this news comes from moto 2 um but starting first of all uh we'll bring you some endurance world championship news because uh that championship started up again last weekend the 2018 slash 19 championship because last season's championship culminated uh, at the suzuka Eta with the victory um for the yamaha factory racing number 21 um and the championship last year was won by fcc tsr honda now they've started their title defense by winning the 24-hour race of the boldor which is for those that aren't familiar with endurance racing, is a 24-hour race around Paul Ricard, um, the uh, newest circuit or the newest returning circuit to the Formula 1 calendar this year. 
Um, and for those that are wondering, they don't run down the chicane, down the uh, down the long back straight. They go down the entire back straight. Um, yeah, boy. So, uh, so twenty four hours around there is quite a challenge. But it was the FCC TSR Honda team, the reigning world champions, um, that took victory in the end by fifty four seconds, which over a twenty four hour race isn't actually that much. Um, ahead of the uh, Yacht Yamaha team, the Yamaha Oshri team, who had a crash midway through the race and recovered to finish second. Um, but it was the uh, SEC TSR Honda team of Freddie Foray, Josh Hook, and Mike DeMeglio who took the victory um, ahead of Yacht Yamaha and uh, completing the podium uh, with a pens13.com Yamaha team. They ran BMWs last year, they now run BM, uh, they now run Yamahas uh, with Mathieu Legrieve, uh, Britain's Danny Webb, former pole sitter, of course, in Moto 3. Uh, and Sheridan mm-hmm. Marias, uh, who of course has more recently hey. been in Moto2 World Supersport, uh, they completed the podium in third uh, position. Uh, that was the first round of the championship, of course, which will culminate next summer uh, at the 2019 Suzuka 8 Hours. Uh, now, as I say, a lot of Moto2 news to bring you, um, and it would be impossible, really, to bring you a Moto2 news roundup without mentioning Romano Fanati, um, because he's <clears> still <throat> in the news. Um, after that brain fade that he had at Mizano last weekend, and I'm probably being a bit kind to him by calling it that. Um, but he's been summoned to the FIM headquarters in Switzerland since uh, the last uh, time he set foot on a racetrack. Um, and the FIM, Dre, have been quite tough with him. Um, now, it was a largely academic anyway, given that he'd been sacked by his current team and essentially sacked before even joining his future team for next year. Um, but the FIM have torn up his license essentially for the rest of the season and he will have to uh, satisfy uh, criteria which they haven't necessarily specified um, in order to get a license for next year Um, which I suppose is the FIM sending out the right message yeah um, I'm glad they've kind of in a sense overruled MotoGP no he's not racing again this year which I think is the I think was the that was my call when I first saw the incident I thought yeah ban him for the year Set them to sit, sit, sit the rest of the year out, quite frankly. So, yeah, I can't argue with that. I think that's a good decision. Um, and you know, it also stops any team that maybe has a rider injury or has a sudden cut to just pick Fanati up off the free agency like nothing's happened. Um, I'm, I'm glad that's basically been curtailed, basically, at this point. So, yeah, I like the move. I, I, I'm, I think the FA, I think that FIM made the right decision here to uh to, to take for that was a license away for the year and yeah give us some time to get to sit at home and think about what he's done um quite frankly so yeah i'm, I'm totally okay with that i mean last week we obviously devoted a lot of uh time to romano fanati's uh plight and his predicament that he'd um kind of plunged himself in with his actions at mizano and, and i'm just wondering i they, they discussed this on bt sport today during free practice at aragon now that a couple of weeks have passed since the, the madness and the mayhem of Bizarro. I mean, how do we? How does it sit with us now? I mean, I don't know whether necessarily opinions of what he did have changed, but now that everything's calmed down a little bit since then, are we? Are we now more? I mean, to be fair, I think we were kind of of this view last week. Are we now more of the view that this guy does deserve the chance, even if it's not in anywhere near the near future. This guy does deserve the chance one day to maybe restart and revitalize his career again if he chooses to. Yeah, I think so. I mean. <sighs> Like I said before, like I said during last week's show, this is still a 22-year-old man who probably needs help. Um, And I don't think anyone should have enough power to say this man can never ride a competitive motorcycle again. Um, 
I'm a firm believer in second chances. And if the FIM deems it appropriate that he can ride again, I don't see why he shouldn't be denied that opportunity if someone believes they can get the best out of him as a rider and as a human being. Like, I don't see why not. I mean, he he, he would have repaid his debt to, to, to bike racing, and I don't see any reason why someone else couldn't take a chance on him. So, no, in, in from where I'm sitting, I feel like, yeah, the rest of the year out is, is an unprecedented level of suspension for him for what he's done, and I'm glad he's getting that. And when 2019 comes along, he gets a fresh start. And, you know, whether someone takes a chance on him remains to be seen. That's ultimately up to any potential employees if they want to take that gamble on him or not. That's up to them. But um, um, I don't think, you know, I mean, I, I don't think Fanati should be blackballed from riding a bike ever again. I think that's, I think, I think that's silly. And if Fanati comes through this a better rider and human being as a result, then the, the system's done its job. So as far as I'm concerned, yeah, I don't see any reason why he shouldn't be given a second chance again down the road. Yeah, the Moto2 news segment for this week's show is very Italian heavy um, because a lot of the news uh, surrounds next year. And it kind of has a... They are knock-on effects from what Ryan Fernati did at Mizano because... He was set to ride for the uh, forward racing team, which, of course, were jumping into bed with MV Augusta for next year as they return to the uh, World Championship in Grand Prix racing. That mm-hmm. spot now looks like it's going to go to Mattia Passini, um, who's going to switch over from the Ital Trans team. Um, but, Dre, Ital Trans look like they found more than a capable replacement. Yeah, and they have Bastianini heading up there from, uh, from his Moto3. Yeah, I think that's a very solid pull um, for its alterans. I mean, at this point, like, I don't know what else Enea Bastianini can learn um, in Moto3. I think it's a good time for a rookie to move up as well because everyone's starting from zero next year with the new Triumph. Exactly. The new Triumphs, everyone's got a blank. Don't know how good anyone's truly going to be. Um, So, yeah, now is as good a time as any, if you ask me. Um, to come up to Moto2, and Ney has been a, a veteran of the Moto3 class now, which is weird to say for a guy still only 22 years old. But yeah, he's been a veteran of the class for quite some time. So now's as good a time as any to move up. I think it's a bit of a law of diminishing returns. He sticks around in Moto3. He gets to join a, a good Moto2 package, a good Moto2 team. It's all trends that you know, have contended for titles before. They've had multiple race winners in the past obviously like Matteo Pacini now and uh, Takanaka Gami um who would go on to be to be in MotoGP and whatnot they've had good riders come through them in the last few years and there's no reason why that can't continue I mean didn't Frankie Morbidelli win his first Moto2 race of that team as well I think he did he, didn't he well no I think he got his first podium for them um, podium. Um, but I think his yeah. first win came at the start of last year with Mark Bede, yes Yes, um, quite but right. It, but, yeah, it, but it is a good right. team. It is a good team in this class because they mm. they famously ran Nakagami at the start of his Moto2 career as well, didn't they? Um, mm, exactly. And he got results for them. It is a good team um, in the Moto2 class. They they know what they're doing and they've actually quietly under the radar been guiding Andrea Locatelli to some decent results this year as well. Um, mm-hmm. So um, so Bastini joining a good team and I think it's on a couple of levels. It's about time he got out of Moto3 for a start because he's been in that class now for what this is fourth season. Um, in yeah. that class, and he's, you know, he's, I think he's got to that level now where he's not like not likely to win a championship, but he's learned about all there is to learn in Moto Three. Um, so exactly. getting onto a Moto Two bike, and let's see what he can do. That argument in terms of he spent long enough in this class and he's better off moving out of Moto Three certainly applies to this man, uh, because Sky VR Forty Six confirmed their lineup in Moto Two and Moto Three for next season, and into their Moto Two team steps Nipkolo Bulliga, um, who. 
started his Moto3 career brilliantly last year um, with, um, or you know, the year before last, of course, where he stepped into the class and had a pole position very early, had a podium in his, what, his fourth race at Jerez, um, sank without trace last season and hasn't really been very good this year either. Um, this is a rider who I'm still convinced, Dre, is a sensational talent um, if he can get his head right and get the machine right. And I think given that he's very, very tall for an 18-year-old, I think Moto2 is the best place for him. I think so too. And again, he's a six-footer, which is a bad fit for Moto3. Many a guy who's struggled in Moto3 due to their size has gone on to better things in, in Moto2, like Jonas Volga is a good example of that. He was oversized for a Moto3 rider. He would go on to... Um, you know, he would he would go on to uh, Moto Two and be much stronger for it. It's just, it's just a better fit for a guy of his size. And yeah, again, I, I don't know how much more Bulliger is going to be in in the hyper competitive Moto Three space. He's been in there three seasons now, and he's, his his career's not progressed. If anything, it's gone. It's actually regressed a little bit in the time he's been with them. So, as far as I'm concerned, um, moving up now again is it's the right time for him. Bulliger's a very talented rider, and I think Moto2 might be a better fit for him in the long run. Yeah, exactly. I think the, the bike will suit him better in terms of his um, his you know being quite a tall rider. But also, there'll be less pressure on him um, in yeah. Moto2. He won't, he, won't, he won't be expected to be the golden child that I think many people thought he would be. Um, stepping out of the VR46 Junior World Championship team as you know the, the next super talent off that production line and then starting his career so well. He was he was every bit as good as Joan Mia in, in in their rookie season side by side. You know, they went mm-hmm. to the final round, you know, fighting against each other to finish as rookie of the year that year. Um, and of course Mia took it. Um so Bulliger that for me there's great radio in there. And there's one example I would give anybody who questions this move and I'll give I'll give you Lorenzo Baldassari. Very, very mm-hmm. similar career very, very tall rider at a very young age. You go take a look at his Moto3 record and try and spot the podiums. It won't take you long because there were none of them. But just look mm-hmm. at how well he's done in Moto2 because, you know, he was a phenomenal talent at a very young age and he just grew out of... He outgrew Moto3, essentially. Um, yeah. And I think, basically. to a large extent, that's what Bulliger's done. Um, so I think he'll do a great job next season. And alongside him, it has to be said, Dre, we shouldn't overlook him. He's retained his spot at the team. But Luca Marini looks well-placed to lead that team next year. Very well placed. Like with all the guys moving up, Luca Marini favorite for 2019. Him versus Alzari could be the title fight. He may, maybe throw bad Brad Binder in there as well, potentially. Um, if 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 the KTM package holds up, um, I have to wait and see. But yeah, I think Marini is in a very very nice spot where he could be leading that team going forward. Exactly, he'll do a great job. Their Moto Three lineup has been confirmed as well. Um, they've retained Dennis Foggia, which is no great surprise because he's, of course, a rookie this season. He's done a solid job. His teammate, um, it'll be a great one for commentators alike next season to pronounce, the Italianly splendidly named Celestino Vietti Ramos, um, who will join Foggia in their Sky VR46 Moto3 team. He's currently 10th uh, in the Moto3 Junior World Championship, riding for, unsurprisingly, the Sky VR46 Junior team in that championship. So uh, he will be uh, the next rider into their Grand Prix team, uh, next season, partnering uh, Foggia um, for 2019. Uh, now, let's look ahead to this weekend then and preview the Aragon Grand Prix before we go. It's the penultimate European round of the championship uh, with the four Asia-Pacific flyaways and Valencia to go um, once this weekend 
is out of the way. Um, it's a weekend that, on the face of it, is heavily weighted in favour of Mark Marquez, Dre. Um, and um, we sometimes would say, oh, yeah, Mark Marquez owned last weekend. Well, he doesn't necessarily own Aragon, but he does own one particular corner. They've named turn 10 after him. Yes, the downhill left-hander is now the officially the Mark Marquez corner. Put up a beautiful monument there Thursday as well. Showed it off uh, the ant in, the, uh, in, in, in full display, which is Marquez's signature. Um, very, very nice indeed. Um, and, yeah, very cool in general. And, um, you know, we, we saw Jorge Lorenzo um get you know get the the final corner at Haref named after him after his infamous pool jump a few years ago and that was after his second premier top flight title um so to, to get a corner in racing named after you while you're still an active competitor and still only 25 years old it goes to show you the level of impact that uh that, that marquez has had in in back home in spain and in moto gp already so yeah very cool distinction for marquez to have very cool and uh, in terms of the championship and what we've got this weekend, Mark Marquez leads it by, well, a sizable advantage of 70-plus points over Andrea De Vizioso, who's now up into second by virtue of his win at Mizano. Um, Mark Marquez is in that luxurious position where he can just follow the Ducatis if he has to, which is largely what he did in Mizano, um, mm. and just pick up the scraps if one or two of the Ducatis make mistakes. Um but I'm not sure if that's necessarily the attitude that Mark Marquez will take into this weekend because this is a circuit that he's been so good at in the past. He'll obviously want to try and win races where he can this year. And given how strong Ducatis are at the moment, this might be one of his best opportunities for the rest of this year to get another win on the board. Yeah, as much as Marquez has been playing the championship game, if he sees an opportunity to try and win a race, he will absolutely go all out to try and take it. And this is the big opportunity now. If he can add to his championship lead even more, basically and uh and you know stretch it out to beyond 70 points um and take that going into the flyaways coming up with thailand next up first of all which is a brand new track which nobody really knows how it's going to go in full racing conditions we'll have to wait and see but more importantly it's one less round for the chicatis to try and reel them in who probably have the best bike in the field right now uh, certainly with you know more runners at the top as well which isn't going to help marquez in the grand scheme of things so yeah like if marquez can take a win here take a round off the ducatis and you know take this championship lead to beyond 70 points it's basically over at that point in time it's a big opportunity for him to really cement this title win and why wouldn't he try and go for it because he loves aragon he's won here the last two years i think he's had five or six pole positions around here as well so he, he he's very very fast around here and will probably be the man to beat yeah he will and i think if uh, if ducati can pull off a win at a marquez track then we really know that this is getting serious uh, with mm -hmm. the uh, with the emergence of, of the bologna bikes and um i said this already to dre before we started recording i think if, if ducati win this weekend immediately installed davizioso as title favorite for 2019 completely agreed um, because ducati will clearly just have a, not only the best bike in the field but the best bike just about anywhere on the calendar um, at the moment. Um, Adam Johnson is listening live at the moment on Discord. Did ask us tongue-in-cheek earlier on, are there any championships that are going down to the wire or what? Um, in reference to the World Superbike Championship and, in co of course, the World MotoGP Championship, which is likely to be decided early. Formula 1 may well be decided early. Um, and several other championships have either been decided early or have already finished. Um, to give you a bit of a crumb of comfort, AJ, championships that may well make it all the way to the wire. Dre, Moto 2 and 3 might well still make it to Valencia, still wide open. Um, certainly Moto 2 should, given that it's only a, what, a, an eight-point lead at the moment uh, for Banyaya over Oliveira. 
uh, and Moto3 a very similar advantage for Martin. And I have to say, Moto3 this weekend could be fascinating because we all know how dominantly strong the KTMs are down the straights. And uh, mm-hmm. I have to say, if Jorge Martin pulls this one off, he may have to do some Joan Mierstar's slaloming down the back straight to pull it off. Anyone for Ski Sunday again? Because um, <laughs> if he's anywhere wait. near a, a group of riders on that final lap, they're just going to swallow him up on that final straight. Exactly. That final straight is uh, not good if you're leading front, shall we say, which is what Martin's probably better at. Um, and yeah, KTMs do have the fastest bike in a straight line. It's probably how Marco Bezecchi ended up winning in Austria earlier this season those sorts of tracks you know the ktm is very very strong so martin's going to be struggling but yeah that that thought alone is probably going to go down to the wire because bezecchi i think has been a little bit more consistent than martin over the course of the year so far moto 2 could be interesting as well peko banyaya is still looking very quick indeed but this is also coming into the time of year where miguel Oliveira seems to step it up he very nearly won here last year in moto 2 chasing down that tactical fight between morbidelli and Pasini in moto 3 in the past he's been very strong in the second half of the calendar in general so he likes the flyaways and he likes Aragon. And this is when KTM really started to find their footing in Moto2 last year. So if that happens again, Miguel Oliveira will certainly be one to watch in that title fight with Banyaya. Then again, Banyaya has been really fast in practice. So what do I know? <laughs> Oliveira wasn't exactly slow, though, in free practice. So um, so we shall see. It's going to be a fascinating weekend in all three classes. As I mentioned, we're getting really close to the end of the season in that we have only two European rounds to go. First of mm-hmm. which is this weekend at Aragon. Then we head off to the first ever Thai Grand Prix and the uh, three um, more familiar Asia-Pacific flyways that follow that um, in Japan, Australia and Malaysia before we return to Europe for the final round in Valencia in November. Um, just to emphasize how close we're getting to the end of the season, uh, next week on Motorsport 101, uh, we have our first season review um, of 2018. Um Episode 162, Caesars Review, the 2018 IndyCar season, Dre, which um, has to be said, and I know I don't watch all of them, but just from following it from a distance, it's kept us guessing all the way through. It really has, to be fair. And I mean, it's, it's easy to look back and say that Scott Dixon was, you know, the dominant champ, but he had to earn it this one. And, you know, he was chased down towards the end of it as well by Alex Rossi and that's kind of been the story of IndyCar in 2018 it's been a a, a great blend of the veteran names like Scott Dixon Will Power um and, and, and the new breed in the present that's going to carry this series in the next decade or so with Joseph Newgarden being a title contender Newgarden winning three rounds and Alex Rossi you know very nearly challenging for the title him being a bit rough around the edges and of course, we've got to talk a little bit about Robert Wickens and all of that as well, having a fantastic rookie year. Sadly, it did not end the way he would have hoped. But uh, if, it, if his Twitter account has anything to go by, then signs are positive. He probably will be back in a race car one day, which is a great sign for the future going forward. But yeah, yeah we'll be talking about all the IndyCar season, the rounds, the you know, Team Penske not really being the same they've been in the past. The, the rise again of Andretti, Hunter Ray's great performances, Pamela winning the 500, the new aero kit and the impact that's made on the series. Um, and of course, to close the, the second half of the year where Rossi, it turned into Rossi versus Dixon, really, more than anything else. And yeah, we'll be talking about all the elements of that, all the races, all the teams, and what to look forward to for 2019. Because again, this IndyCar will be taking a big shift again in 2019 with you know Laguna Seca back on the calendar, the Circuit of the Americas, um, which is going to be a fantastic spectacle for IndyCar. Uh, to have. rocking up. 
potentially Fernando Alonso, the big news is in race and into two cars next year and taking both first and second in the Indy Lights title. If Pado Award about that sensational weekend in Sonoma with that ninth placed finish and making the far six in qualifying and Colton Herter, who was second in Indy Lights last year, still only 18 years old, um, is going to be an IndyCar full-time next year with Harding Racing. Um, was it, was it now it should be named the Harding Steinbringer Racing Team. Bit of a fan for you Yankees fans out there mm-hmm. who's listening from the States. Um, so a lot to look forward to there for the 2019 season, and we will go all the way back through 2018 and look forward to the future of IndyCar in our season review for episode 162 next week. Yep, do tune into that. Before uh, we go, then the other places you can find us, facebook.com forward slash motorsport 101 on twitter at motorsport underscore 101 is the place to follow us our youtube channel youtube.com forward slash motorsport 101 do check that out because we have a new dre brief uh, video up there this week uh, explaining why we are missing nico rosberg from formula one so much uh, so do check that out um, our website is motorsport 101.com uh, where you can find our written content over there as well and uh, our patreon page where you can back us financially and yourself early access to our podcast it's patreon.com forward slash motorsport 101 if you back us at five dollars a month you get the podcast earlier than everyone else if you back us at the ten dollar level you can listen in live um on our discord server as uh, several of you are doing right now and thank you to all of you for listening um we'll be back next week uh here on bike live for episode 80 um of bike live here on motorsport 101 to review um the uh moto gp of aragon which uh, we're delighted to say will feature the spanish elvis if that's not a reason to yes! tune in next week then i don't know what is we'll be back for episode 80 next week as we review uh the aragon grand prix in moto gp moto 2 and moto 3 with that brings us to the end of episode 79 um as we saw another captivating race in this year's world super sport title fight but if your name's lucas mahias it fell rather flat we will see you next week